looking in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah was one inspired by God to write about the first coming of the Messiah. But he also had some parts of his vision that God had given him was writing about the second coming. And so we'll be looking today in Isaiah chapter 2 and starting at verse 1. And would you please stand for God's word. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Lord, help us to to walk in your light. Help us to have light that might illuminate our, our minds and our hearts to know your truth and what you want to do, what you want us to do about it, how you want it to impact our lives. Pray for the revelation of your truth now into our lives, for your light to shine in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As kids look ahead to Christmas, they do so often with some anticipation. They often look ahead with a, a sense of wonder, uh, a sense of expectation that they're going to get something good. As adults look ahead, sometimes we're looking ahead with a little bit of fear and trepidation. We're looking ahead thinking, oh, there's so much we've got to do before then. <laughs> We're looking ahead and we're wondering, are we going to get it done? Is it going to work out? How is it going to be? May we approach, not just Christmas, but may we approach life a little bit more like the kids. With a sense of wonder. A sense of anticipation that God has something good for us. Let's look ahead to what God has for us. Let's look forward. Let's look forward to walking in God's paths. Isaiah is writing here to people who had been walking their own path. He's writing to people who had been doing their own things. They'd been worshiping false gods and had led them down some dangerous paths. And now he's looking ahead to the day when people are going to walk in God's paths. God teaches us the best way to live. He says here in Isaiah, he will teach us his way so we may walk in his path. God is graciously willing to teach us. The Lord who has all wisdom and all knowledge, who knows what is the best thing to do. The Lord who has all the wisdom is willing to share with us. He's willing to teach us. He's willing to instruct us. He's willing to guide us. We rejoice that he is graciously willing to point us to the right path. Because without him pointing us to the right path, we could never find it. 
In Psalm 25, verse 4 and verse 9, he says, Show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. We need God to teach us his way. Because our way doesn't work out real well. The world's way doesn't work well. But God says, I'll teach you my way. In Psalm 32, verse 8, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. He teaches us the way that we should go. The world will tell us the way it wants us to go, but God knows the way we should go. And God's willing to teach us that. In Isaiah 48, in verse 17, he says, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. He knows what's best. God knows what is best for you. In our pride at times, we think we know what's best. But we have to humbly admit, no, I don't always know what's best for me. But God knows. God wants what is best for you. He knows what is best for you, and he'll direct you in the way that is best. Some years ago, I had the chance to be in India, and there was we were out at a village church, and another guy, another American was speaking. It was his turn to speak a little bit, and he's talking to people about what you do if you got lost. And this was some years back before everybody had GPS and phones and and he was talking about what you do if you're lost and he was trying to lead into people saying, well, you get a map. Well, I kind of saw, I was sitting behind him and thinking this isn't going well and I tried to whisper to him, I don't think they know what maps are. <laughs> and yeah, they didn't know what a map was so the illustration didn't work well. But one sweet lady in the congregation she just said, well, if I was lost, I'd ask God to show me where to go, and he'd show me. <laughs> well, you can't argue with that. It didn't work with the guy's illustration, but, but it was right. And I thought afterwards, I appreciate her faith. That she just had this confidence that if you're lost, you ask God, and he'll show you where to go. That she was putting it if you're literally lost, but it applies to all of life. When we don't know what to do, when we don't know what path we ought to take, when we don't know what decision we ought to make, we can ask God, and he'll show us where to go. He'll direct us to his path, and we can walk in God's light. He speaks of walking in his path, and he also speaks about walking in the light of the Lord. It's a dark world. It's a world where the darkness is prevailing often it seems, and trying to find the right path, trying to find which way we ought to go, it, it's hard in the dark. It's hard in the dark to find much of anything. But we give thanks, light has come. Isaiah later in his book, he, he writes in chapter 9, verse 2, in speaking, looking at the coming of Christ, he says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. A light has dawned. The, the, we are the people who've been walking in darkness. But now a light has come. Jesus is the light. He described himself in John 8 and verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
Light has come into this dark world, and so we don't need to walk in darkness anymore. The world is walking around, stumbling along in the dark, not knowing what to do or where to go. But we rejoice that we can walk in the light. I think of one time being out on, the, out on a beach with a friend, and he had a, we were in his truck, and it was one of those nights where there wasn't the moon wasn't shining, not many stars were out on the beach, way quite a ways away from any kind of just other lights. And I remember it struck me. I thought, boy, I hope his headlights keep going well, <laughs> because otherwise we're not going to find the path to get off the beach, and the tide's coming in. <laughs> Fortunately, the lights on his truck kept on shining. But it's when you get in the darkness like that, you really appreciate having some light. We live in a dark world and we appreciate the light of Christ. We appreciate that we can walk in his light. Light shows us how things are. And most of all, the light shows us who God is. It shows us the truth about the Lord and we can look forward to God's supremacy being seen. The first coming looked like an ordinary baby. But in the second coming, it will be clear to everybody that he isn't ordinary, he's extraordinary. And he is the Lord who is far above all others. He has no equal, no rival, no comparison. There's no one who's even close. As it speaks here in Isaiah, the mountain of the Lord's temple is, is chief and it'll be raised above. He's speaking about where the Lord is worshipped in that represents and speaks to the, the nature of the Lord. He is to be worshipped above all other gods. Anything else that people would worship is no comparison to him. His authority, he reigns supreme over all. As we said, in Isaiah's day, they were worshipping false gods. Later in this chapter 2, in verse 8, he says, Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the, worship, the work of their hands. But then he warns, he says, men will be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted. He's saying these people now, they're, they're bowing to the work of their own hands. They're bowing to things that they have made. But he says the day's coming when the Lord is going to be exalted and it's going to be clear. Then in chapter 2 and verse 22, he speaks of the splendor of his majesty and it speaks of the Lord that he rises to shake the earth. And then he asks a question. He says, stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? He's saying, what are you worshiping people for? What are you bowing before people thinking they're so important and being intimidated and scared of them? He's saying the Lord is the one who has the majesty. The Lord is the one who rises to shake the earth. So stop trusting in people. Instead, worship the Lord. He is the one who is exalted. He is the one who is the authority, and, and we need to recognize that, yes, maybe at times he, he doesn't seem to be the authority, and we look around us, and it seems there's all kinds of human authorities, but no, Christ is the one. As he declares in Ephesians 1, verse 21, it says, He has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, 
far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Christ is far above. Yes, he was a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, but, but now he reigns far above. In Psalm 113, it says, Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? Who is like the Lord our God? There is no one like him. There's a movie some years ago called The World's Fastest Indian. It told the true story of a guy in New Zealand named Bert Monroe. And Bert Monroe, he, he made this, this Indian Scout motorcycle that was the fastest one around. And he, he came, he brought it from New Zealand to the United States and then went on Bonneville Salt Flats to set a land speed a record of the fastest motorcycle run. Well, the movie tells about him, he's kind of up in years a little bit, especially for motorcycle racing. And he comes to the States and he has his motorcycle and it didn't look necessarily all that impressive. And he, he's out someplace and he's, he's going with his motorcycle and, and some young guys come along and they look at him and they look at this guy who they think is an old guy on a motorcycle. And so they challenge him. They say, hey, you want to race? Well, at first, he's a little hesitant to race. He doesn't want to do a big thing about it and stuff, but they keep kind of taunting him, and so finally he has enough of it. He says, well, okay. And these young guys are just thinking, we're going to really show this guy and embarrass him. And they get the race going, and they start it out, and somebody calls out, and poosh, Monroe just flies away. <laughs> and these young guys are just kind of left standing still almost. They're just blown away. There's no comparison. And they look really foolish to challenge him to a race. It's even more foolish to challenge the Lord. The Lord blows away any competition. Don't be foolish and think you can challenge God. Don't be foolish and think somehow you can just do your own thing. No, it's foolish to go challenge the Lord. And one day, all will know he is the Lord. One day, everyone will know that. He says, one day the Lord's temple will be established as chief. It will be clearly seen that it is over all. And all nations, he says, will stream to it. All peoples will bow and worship. This is being fulfilled to a certain extent now, as there are people from all nations of the world that are bowing before the Lord. There's people from all corners of the globe that acknowledge the name of Christ and worship him. But he says, one day it's going to be seen in his fulfillment. Now, this doesn't mean that all people are going to be saved. Sadly, that's not the case. But it means people from all over the world are going to be gathered together and worshiping the Lord and declaring that he is Lord. And he's also, in a way, he's warning that one day everybody is going to have to admit he's Lord. In Philippians chapter 2, it says that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue will confess, even those that are unlikely ones, even those who are unwilling maybe to confess now are going to be forced to bow before him. It's much better to bow before him now voluntarily. <laughs> 
The day is going to come when those who refuse to bow before him voluntarily now will be forced to acknowledge that he is Lord. Hamas terrorists will be forced to acknowledge he is Lord. Putin will be forced to acknowledge he is Lord. Heads of Communist Party in China will be forced to acknowledge. The head of North Korea will be forced to acknowledge. The Ayatollah in Iran will be forced to acknowledge that he is Lord. And it will not be pleasant for those who are forced to acknowledge and have refused to acknowledge during this life. And we do not look at this truth and we do not do so with the kind of thought, boy, one day they're going to get theirs. <laughs> That's not to be our attitude or approach. Instead, we, we long for people to acknowledge now that he is Lord. And we go to the world and say, he's Lord and it's going to be clearly seen when he returns. Prepare for it. Bow before him now. In Psalm 22, at the beginning of the psalm is, speaks about the cross and it's part of what Jesus quoted on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it speaks of the cross, but then when it comes towards the end of the psalm in, in verse 27, he says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. He rules over the nations. Yes, he is the one who suffered and died on the cross for our sins, but he is also the one who all nations will bow down before. He is the one who rules over the nations. We should be encouraged by the truth that even if in this day and age, at times might seem like those who bow down before him, it might seem to us like it's small in numbers. One day, all the nations, folks from all the nations will bow down before him. In this country, especially after the pandemic, there's been a lot of talk about church growth, church numbers and attendance declining. And, and we might wonder, you know, are we going to grow or more going to come? Oh, one day. Maybe not in this life. We don't know in this earth. But we know that one day in Revelation 7 and verse 9, he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. We don't know if our building's going to be full in this life, in this earth. But we know one day we're going to be part of a worship service with folks from every nation, tribe, people, and language and a multitude that no one can count. We know it's, they use the phrase being on the right side of history. We know God's people are on the right side of history. We know that even if attendance trends might not look real good for our country right now. We know the attendance trend is amazing. <laughs> One day we're going to get to be part of that worship celebration. We look forward to that day. And we look forward to the day when there is true peace. The 1990s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, there were some who maybe naively thought, well, now we are entering into a time of peace. And then terrorists struck on 9-11, Hamas and Hezbollah caused all kinds of issues in the Middle East, and there's all kinds of wars, conflicts going on around the world. 
And it reminds us of what Jesus said in Luke 21. He says, when you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Until Jesus returns, there's conflicts. But he gives the promise that one day peace is going to come. One day resources will be used in productive ways. He has this great word picture here where he talks about they'll beat their swords into plowshares or spears into pruning hooks. They have a statue from the United Nations that is, rep, is inspired by these words. But they maybe think at the United Nations that they will be able to bring this about. It's the Lord who can bring this about. And the picture that he's giving here is of tools being used instead of to cause harm, that the day is going to come when tools and resources will be used to to serve and to produce good things, to produce fruit, instead of be used in ways that are destructive. Resources now are so often used to, to cause damage rather than to serve and to produce fruit. In Jeremiah chapter 24 and verse 6, he says, My eyes will watch over them for their good. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. God is, desires to build up instead of tear down. Those who are trusting in him, those who are trusting in themselves are warned God will tear you down. If you're trusting in yourself and if you're building yourself up, then you'll be torn down. But if you're trusting in Christ, have the rest in the promise. He wants to be a builder. And for us as well, we should, in a way, we rehearse for eternity. By using our resources, using our abilities to be building up instead of so often being involved in attacking and tearing down. The war in Ukraine has, it said it's one statistic they believe it's maybe killed, has led to the deaths of 500,000 people so far. Over 5 million people have been displaced out of their homes. Estimate is that Russia is spending more than $500 million a day on the war. Incredible amount of resources being spent to destroy. And that's going on not just there, but all over the world. Resources being spent to destroy we give thanks that the day is coming when resources will no longer be spent to just destroy. We long for that day. And we give thanks that the day is coming when training will be in how to love and serve. He says, when Christ returns, he says, nor will they train for war anymore. Much training now is done in how to hurt people. Much training now is done in how to build weapons that are going to destroy homes and destroy lives. And yes, some of that is needed. We need ones to be trained in how to protect our country. But we long for the day when that kind of training isn't going to be needed anymore. Because there won't be attacks there won't be warfare, there won't be destruction, there won't be bad guys that we need somebody to protect us from. 
we look forward to that day. The training that is going to come in that day is training in how best to serve, how best to love. In Titus 3, verse 14, he says, Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. He wanted the people to learn to do what's good and how to be productive instead of how to be destructive. So much in our day and age, people are learning, how can I destroy the guy who's causing me harm? How can I get back? How can I get even? How can I tear down this guy I don't like? In eternity, the training is going to be how to serve. In John chapter 13, right before he went to the cross, Jesus gave his last leadership lesson to his disciples. He washed their feet. He said, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. In a way, as another rehearsal for eternity. Let's make sure we're learning not just how can I beat the other guy, but let us spend time praying that God would teach us how can I best wash my neighbor's feet? How can I best serve? How can I best show love? I have a niece who retired recently from L.A. Police Force, went to the Los Angeles Police Academy, and have been there, at least been in the, the parking lot there at the L.A. Police Academy. And we give thanks. There's places like that that train people in how to protect. But we also give thanks that there's a day coming when there won't need to be a police academy anymore. <laughs> There's a day coming when they won't need to train people on how to protect yourself from dangerous folks. We give thanks that the police academy is just there for a temporary basis. Because the Lord will settle all disputes. He will judge, it says. He will settle disputes. He will establish real peace. He will end all the conflict, all the disputing that goes on, all the fighting that goes on. It gets so tiresome. And it seems to be increasing. He starts out this section of Isaiah. He says, in the last days. The Apostle Peter preached on Pentecost and he quoted from another prophet, the prophet Joel, and he, he said, in these last days, and he was referring to then, and he's kind of showing that in, in one respect, right now we're in the last days. And so these verses are applicable to now, and then they will be fulfilled in Jesus' return. They will be fulfilled completely. These are the last days in which disputes can be settled when you bring them to the Lord. Peace can come when you bring it to the Lord. And we do that looking ahead to the day when it will be totally fulfilled and true peace will be established. In Isaiah 11, he speaks of that day and what it's going to look like. He says, a wolf will live with the lamb. He says, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Those who are today fighting those who today look like they could never be at peace. If they come to the Lord, then God can bring about peace. 
if they come and they humble themselves before the Lord, he can bring peace. And when he returns, those who maybe seem like they're irreconcilable, God can bring peace. In Isaiah 32, in verse 18, he says, My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. How we long for peaceful dwelling places. And that's what we get to look forward to. In this life, we don't totally have peaceful dwelling places. But we have this hope, we have this promise that in Christ we look forward to the the secure homes, the undisturbed places of rest. Luke 28, 21, Jesus talks about his return. He talks about the the wars, the rumors of wars, all the conflict going on. He says that's going to be taking place until he returns. But he says, when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. We look around us and we see conflict and disputing and wars, just like Jesus said. But he says, look around and be assured redemption's drawing near. Be assured peace is drawing near. We live in a a world that seems to increasingly have conflict. And we've seen it in our our own country. We've seen it in our Congress. Uh, We've seen conflict going on. This is a picture from one just the past year. uh, Issues, and these guys are in in the same party and they're fighting. Uh, Much less fighting with the other party. One guy, during some of the battles they had in the house, uh, one guy said, I don't think even Jesus could get these guys to work together. Actually, he can. (laughs) He can. He can get Democrats and Republicans to be at peace. He can get Republicans to be at peace with one another. He can get you to be at peace with that person who you maybe don't think you could ever be at peace with. If both sides humbly come before the Lord and humbly come before him and ask for him to bring peace, he can bring about peace. I read recently about some people who are, are nervous about Christmas gathering with family because they have some differences of opinions on things. They have some different viewpoints on things and they're nervous that it's going to be a lot of conflict and a lot of disputing going on. And it's sad. It's sad if you're afraid because the message of Christmas is about the Lord coming and bringing peace. The message of Christmas is about the coming of the Prince of Peace. He wants to bring peace. He promises that he will. And he promises that he can bring peace into our lives. Even now. And he promises that we can look forward to that true and real and lasting peace for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you can settle disputes. Thank you that you are the Prince of Peace. 
of your peace there will be no end. Help us, Lord, to live as children of God, as peacemakers, who point ahead to your return by longing for peace now. Lord, I, I pray too for ones where there is this conflict, ones who maybe are looking ahead to gatherings and they're nervous about it. Pray that you would bring about surprising and miraculous peace. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing uh, another Christmas carol and one that speaks about